Today's scripture will be from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, and then then chapter 14 as well, verses 10 through 21. This scripture comes from, is, is Wednesday of the Passion Week. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Then they began to be sorrowful and say to one, another, to one after another, is, is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as, writ, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Mark chapter 14. What I'm going to ask you to do, if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. We have them in the, there should be in a pew in front of you, a black pew Bible. What I want to encourage you to do is take that pew Bible and turn to page 1011, 1011. It's Mark chapter 14 and 15. That's where we are. We're studying the greatest week and the greatest life. And in the Gospels, you can tell something's really important by how much ink is spilled explaining it or or recounting the story. We have four Gospels, and each writer of these Gospels spent proportionally large amounts of time writing about the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, Matthew, 30% of his gospel records the last week of Jesus' life, which we call Passion Week or Holy Week. Mark, 38% of his gospel deals explicitly with Jesus' last seven days on, on the planet. Luke, 25% of his gospel just focusing on the last seven days of Jesus' life. And then John, 48% of his gospel. So this is really important. It's important to the gospel writers, but it's important to the Lord. So it should be important to us. So we're leading up to Easter. Easter is next Sunday. We will uh, continue studying this today and then Friday night, we have what's called a tenebrae service. You don't know what a tenebrae service is. I'm not going to tell you. You have to come to find out. Friday night, 7 o'clock. It's going to be a great time. We want, it's, a, it's a real intimate service. It's something different. You've probably never experienced before, but it's really sweet. Uh, we do a lot of singing, a lot of scripture reading. Uh, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, it's a really sweet time. I'd encourage you to come if you can. We won't have child care or children's church. Um, because it is an intimate uh, kind of, uh, and we'll sit together with in family units. But just keep in mind so you can prepare for that. Uh, but it is a sweet time. Jesus began the week 
on Palm Sunday, and today is Palm Sunday, and, and James read that text for us. We've already studied that several weeks ago, maybe about a month ago now. Jesus entering Jerusalem on Sunday. And he entered in such a way to this, he declared himself to be king. He declared himself to be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah who is going to come and rule and reign. He entered riding on a donkey to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is hundreds of years prior to Jesus coming to Jerusalem for that last Passover celebration. He fulfills these, this prophecy. It's, it's no mistake. Jesus is coming on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's saying, I am God's king. I am coming to God's people. And so the welcome given to the Lord Jesus really parallels military heroes of the ancient day. But Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem, he's not wanting to be their military leader king. He's wanting to be their savior king. And, and, and to hear the enthusiasm and the shouts and the praise, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus knew that those shouts of, of acclamation and those words of praise are going to lead to his death. See, the same people who are shouting praises to Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem riding that donkey are the same people five days later, some of which are going to be saying, crucify him, crucify him. Do away with him. Away with Jesus of Nazareth. So he enters Jerusalem on Sunday. On Monday, he returns to Jerusalem to drive out the vendors and the money changers from the temple. The cleansing of the temple. The market-type atmosphere that was created in the court of the Gentiles angered Jesus. And so he runs them out. And by doing so, he condemns their worship of their day. This prompted the religious leaders to confront Jesus on Tuesday as he returned once again to Jerusalem. And they asked him who gave him authority to oppose them. Jesus refutes their attempts to discredit him, not once, not twice, not up to five times. He makes them look foolish as they try to get Jesus to stumble over his words or to say something to incriminate himself. But by doing so, what does Jesus do? He proves that he does have authority, and his authority comes from the Lord. Jesus goes on the offensive, and he compares the heart of the scribes to that of a poor widow. The religious leaders are the negative example. Don't be like them. They're scoundrels. They're self-absorbed. Be like this good, poor widow. The poor widow loved the Lord. We know that because of her sacrificial gift. And so today in our text in, in Mark 14 and 15, we're going to look at events that take place on Wednesday, on Thursday, and Friday of Passion Week as recorded in, in the gospel. And we won't study it verse by verse. We're just going to hop, skip, and jump. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the attitudes, the actions of the, of the religious leaders, of Judas, uh, of Pilate, the disciples, and even the lay people of the day. And it juxtaposed with Jesus and his attitude. So kind of a, a fast-paced character sketch, if you will, is what we'll do today in Mark chapter 14 and 15. So what I want you to do is pay attention, keep your Bibles open. We'll be flipping back and forth, and we're going to move rather quickly. So let's look at the, the characters 
involved in these events that take place, Mark chapter 14. First of all, we see the religious leaders. Now, we've been seeing these religious leaders and their true colors for some weeks. So let's just kind of review. They wanted to kill Jesus. It's very, it's very clear. They wanted Jesus taken out because he is getting in the way of what they had. They had a pretty good thing going on. And Jesus is disrupting all of that. He's calling them out. They're the religious. They're the esteemed. They're the ones who, when they walked through the, the, the city and walked through the markets, people would stand in honor of them. They gave them the best seats in the, 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 uh, the banquets and the parties. They love the attention. And what's Jesus doing? He's calling them out, rebuking them making them look bad. And so they wanted to kill Jesus. Three times in Mark, Jesus, he's preparing his disciples for his departure, for his death, for his resurrection, for his ascension. And three different times, he tells his disciples very clearly that he's going to die. Two of those times, he tells us exactly how he's going to die. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. And a matter of fact, it's going to be at the hand of the religious leaders. Also, in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Of course, that being the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus told a parable about these religious leaders. It was very pointed. It was a pointed rebuke. And then he warns them, beware of the scribes. Beware of the religious leaders. Avoid them. They're dangerous. And these very pointed rebukes getting in the face of these so-called godly men. This is all very purposeful because Jesus riding into Jerusalem, Jesus clearing out the temple, Jesus rebuking them openly, publicly, what is that going to do? It's prompting these religious leaders to do what? To take Jesus' life. And that was the Lord's will, wasn't it? Because that was the Father's will. That was, that was Jesus, the Son's will also. As Jesus' popularity has increased, so has the animosity of the religious leaders. They're so envious of Jesus. In fact, in Pilate even knew it was out of envy that the leaders had arrested Jesus and brought Jesus to him for him to be tried. Mark chapter 15, verse 10. We're going to be flipping back and forth. You had to bear with us. Now, Chris did mention, there's a, as you go out the vestibule, there's a little, print out a little sheet that has every day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, from, from Sunday all the way back to the, to the next Sunday of Passion Week. And if you want to, this week in your Bible study reading and your devotional reading, you can read what happened each day. So we printed those out for you. Mark chapter 15, verse 10. This is during his, his trial, if you will, with Pilate. It says, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. So this is the religious leaders. They're, they're envious of Jesus, and they want him killed. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he says this about the religious leaders. They cared more for regulations than for persons more for ceremonial cleansing than for moral purity. 
more for laws than for love. And about their, their envy, he says, nobody is ever envious of others who is not first proud of himself. And proud they were. They're a very proud group of folks. They thought they had it all together. And Jesus is pointing out their sin. In fact, during his trial, chapter 14, verse, verses 56 and 50 through 59, this is during this mock trial that they put Jesus through. Verse 56 of, of Mark chapter 14, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. I mean, they're, they're the preachers of the day. And did not agree means they're lying, right? And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. In fact, many of the religious leaders, they knew Jesus was innocent. They come and they flatter him. They say, we, we know you're, you're, you're a righteous man. You speak truth and you don't, you don't care what people think about you and you don't care what anyone's going to say. You just speak the truth. So many of them knew that he was righteous, that he was innocent. But they didn't really want to know the truth, did they? Even the questions they brought up in chapter 12 that we studied a few weeks back, they're not in earnest. They didn't want to know the truth because their truth would interfere with their lifestyle. Do you know these, this type of person, these type of people, the religious leaders? Now let's look at Judas. What about him? Mark 14, 3 through 9 Mark, sometimes some of these events aren't in chronological order. I think maybe this section here, this event, probably took place Saturday before Passion Week, I'm thinking. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, very expensive, and she broke it and poured over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus, what did he do? He said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and wherever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has, been done, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So there's an expensive bottle of perfume it's been poured out on jesus head disciples some of them are, are upset we wasted that why did she pour that on you all of that it's wasted but of course maybe any other time that would be so but jesus is about to give up his life and be buried and jesus says in verse 8 that she's preparing him for burial burial and so what happens right after this event in verse 10 and 11 it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray them. All this money being wasted, Judas has seen enough. Because if you read all the gospel accounts about Judas, Judas didn't care about the Lord, he cared about his pocket. 
He was a treasurer, if you will. Took care of all the money, and the scriptures tell us that he often used that money for his own personal use. Judas had followed Jesus for three years. Jesus had poured his life into Judas, teaching him, caring for him. He saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, healing the lame, the leper. But Judas decided he would look for an opportunity to turn Jesus over to these religious leaders, and they were glad to give him money. And we know that Jesus, I mean, Judas did just that to Jesus. He betrayed him, and he turned him over to the religious leaders. In fact, after Jesus was arrested and condemned, Judas had somewhat of a uh, time of, of, of reckoning. He returned the money over back over to the religious leaders, and he hung himself. The scriptures tell us that he was seized with remorse. He didn't repent, but he did feel a little guilty, a little terrible for what he had done. So how would we describe Judas? Well, he was self-serving. He was greedy. And even though he had been cared for by Jesus, seeing the Son of God do all the things that the Son of God did, <laughs> Judas was all about Judas. Self-absorbed. It's all about me. What about this type of person? Do you know anyone like that? What about Pilate? Mark tells us about a, a good bit about Pilate. Let's read in chapter 15, verse 6 through 15. I know we're hop, skipping, and jumping all over the place in 14 and 15, but look at chapter 15, verse 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked... It's a tradition they had there at the feast. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. He's a murderer. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you king of the Jews? Now Pilate here, he thought he would try to get Jesus off the hook. The crowd was asking for a prisoner to be released, and he thought, hmm, I've got a notorious prisoner here, Barabbas. He's pretty a salty character. He's a horrible man. Surely the crowd will choose him over Christ, over Jesus from Nazareth. And then you try to lighten Pilate's guilt here by saying, well, he was trying to do the right thing, and maybe at first he was. But in the end, what did he do? He did the wrong thing, didn't he? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. In verse 11, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? See, he knows he's innocent. But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So, what did Pilate do? He wished to satisfy the crowd. So they, he released Barabbas, the murderer, the horrible person, and had Jesus scourged and delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate sent an innocent man to die. And not just an innocent man, a man innocent of the charges brought against him. No, Jesus was innocent of all accusation. He was the innocent one. And he 
I mean, this is the man who had given life to the dead and health to the sick, hope to the hopeless. And in return, Pilate gave the people Barabbas. Wow. And why? Is it because he didn't believe? Well, that's, of course, that's obvious. But also, he was a people pleaser, wasn't he? He was a coward who was swayed by men. He disregarded truth to please others. I mean, he had an opportunity to do a responsible, moral, a right thing, but because of what others might think or what others might do, he caved. Do you know this type of person? What about the disciples? They'd been following Jesus for three years. Of course, Judas was a part of that group. I mean, they'd given up their jobs. They had left family to be taught by this rabbi. Chapter 14, verse 17 through 21 celebrating the Passover meal together on Wednesday evening. He came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus says, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, is it I? They're, they're not sure. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? The one dipping, dipping the bread into the dish with me. And he says, it would be better for this man who betrayed me not to have been born. Look at verses 26 through 31. And when they'd sung a hymn after the dinner, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he says, Yeah, there's going to be one going to betray me, but guess what? One's going to betray me, but all of you are going to fall away. None of you are going to stick behind me. Then Peter, the loudmouth. Any of you relate to Peter? Any of you have that kind of personality? Peter says, even though they all fall away, I want. I don't care what these sorry rascals do. I'm not going to do that, right? And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You won't just deny me once. You'll do it three times. But he said emphatically, if, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. It's interesting. He tells them they're going to deny him, all the disciples, and then Peter specifically, not just once, but three times. And then he takes his closest disciples, the ones that you see him doing special things with, transfiguration, right? Here on the mount, he goes to the Mount of Olives, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and Jesus is burdened, and he's, he's feeling the weight of what's about to occur. Look at verse 34. And he, he begins, he says to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. In other words, they're embarrassed, and they're ashamed. They can't stay awake to pray. And he came a third time. Again, found them sleeping. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it enough? It is enough, he says. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. They can't stay awake. They're tired, and Jesus is facing this cross, and he takes his three closest friends, disciples, and they can't stay awake. Of course, after Jesus is arrested, verse 50 of chapter 14 tells us they all left him and fled. And then, of course, you have Peter, right? The one who would, even if all of them fall away, I will not, right? Let's look at verse 66 of chapter 14. Let's read about Peter. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Now, Peter had followed them to where they had taken him for trial. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You are also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Denial number one, right? And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystander, This man's one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystander said again to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. That's the second and third time, right? And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. So why did Peter deny Christ? We talked about this Wednesday night. We're, we're talking on Wednesday night. The adults are studying. We're talking about anxiety and, and what the Bible says about anxiety. But he denied Jesus because he was scared. He saw what had happened to Jesus, and he thought if he associates with him, the same might happen to him. Is it not true? Now, Peter, of course, at this moment, before the resurrection, he had not had his eyes open. That wouldn't come till after the resurrection. He's not the faithful, courageous preacher we see at Pentecost. Now he's just a loudmouth, scaredy-cat, sissy-punk, so-called disciple of Jesus who's denying him left and right. See, the disciples at this point in time, before the resurrection, before they were able to see the risen Lord, they wanted to associate with Jesus, but not too closely. They want to associate with Jesus. They love the miracles. They love the... Him, they loved him sending them out and them doing miracles in his name. They loved that. But to suffer, ah, uh, we don't want to follow that closely. Do you know that type of person? They want to be associated with Jesus, but ooh, I don't know about 
denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. Lastly, we have the Jewish people, the, the crowds. On Palm Sunday, they're singing his praises, aren't they? They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, and that's something to get excited about. They're singing his praises as he rides on, on the, the donkey into Jerusalem. But it's interesting, their antics with Pilate lets us know that the coronation that they appeared to be giving Jesus was a false coronation, was it not? Mark chapter 15, verses 9 through 14. Jesus is before Pilate. We just read this text. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He's trying to release Jesus. What about Barabbas? He's like, go in there and find the, the worst scoundrel here. Barabbas. You can have Barabbas, you can have Jesus. You don't want Barabbas, he's a murderer. He's the worst of the worst. They're like, nah, give us Jesus. What do I do with this man? He's innocent. What do you want me to do with him? You don't want me to release him to you. What do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. Crucify them. Do away with them. Why are these fellow Jews so much in opposition to the one who had healed their sick and set free their demon possessed and fed their hungry? Because they didn't believe. And if you read the account when he's on the cross, they mock him. Chapter 15, verse 29, they, they mock Jesus while he's dying on the cross. And it's interesting, when, when they're among the 5,000 that he's feeding, they want to make him king. Do you remember that story? He fed the 5,000. They want to make him king. They're trying to make him king. But when he says, take up the cross and suffer for our namesake, they run for the hills. Do you know that type of person? So the religious leaders, they're obstinate and they're godless. Judas was faithless and self-absorbed. Pilate, he's a, a people pleaser. The disciples, they're, they're overcome with the fear of man. The crowds, his fellow Jews, they're fickle. They, they love him one day, Embracing him one day and rejecting him the next. But at this point, they're all disbelieving and they're all culpable. They're all sinners. And Mark, what he does, he's, he paints this horrid picture of sinful humanity represented by all these folks treating the Son of God so terribly. And what makes the picture so terrible that he's painting of all these sinful people is it's the backdrop. And the backdrop's the, the central character to the whole story. And that's Christ. I mean, really quickly, let's compare the, the sinners to the sinless. Jesus has been telling him, his disciples, all along that he's going to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, going to be killed and then raised on the third day. And he never hesitated. He kept focused 
on the plan, obeying the Father, obeying the Father. He enters Jerusalem to the, hears the accolades of the people, knowing that these shouts of praise will be what the Father uses to bring about his death. But he proceeds on. He enters the city just like he's supposed to on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy. In chapter 14, look, look at 14, verse 34 and 36. Again, he's in the garden and he's praying. Is there another way? Can this be done a different way? And, and when there's silence, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And, it, and at this point in time in the garden, it's really heavy on, on Jesus. He knows what's coming. It's, it's weighing on him heavily. But he never shied away from it, despite what it meant for him. And then when he's arrested, and Peter, if you remember, Peter cuts off the, the ear of the high priest servant, verse 49. He says, he heals the, the, the servant's ear, and he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. His disciples, his three closest friends, they can't stay awake to pray. And he wakes them up and he finally just says, the hour's come, I'm betrayer's coming. And what does he do? He meets them in the garden, gives himself up, when abused, was mistreated for no reason. He never retaliated. He stayed the course, obeying the Father and everything. The religious leaders there and Pilate, they're swayed by men, and Jesus is never swayed by anyone, right? Judas was self-serving, and Jesus was self-sacrificing. Disciples, they're fickle and fearful, avoiding suffering. Despite the wrath to come, Jesus embraces the Father's will. He is... After all, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So kind of wrapping this up, where do we fit in in this story? Who do we identify with? Any of the culprits that we've looked at? First Peter 3.18 tells us that Jesus, he died for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's what the scripture says. So he died for sins. Does, doesn't that include ours? So we look at these characters and you think they're culprits, they're culpable, they're guilty. And we, we weren't spectators of these events. We weren't spectators to Jesus' death, but we are participants, are we not? And like Pilate, you remember what Pilate tried to do after he was going to turn Jesus over. He said, well, I'm going to wash my hands of this. He did it out in public. <laughs> Try to avoid culpability. But that's futile, right? Because what have we done? We've, we've been greedy and selfish and fearful and we haven't believed and we've been envious and selfishly ambitious and all of those things and we could go on and on and on and on and on we too are culpable and the Bible teaches that Jesus came to die for sinners 
so that sinners, people who have rebelled against the Lord, who are, who are separated from the Lord, you know, you got sinners, you got holy God. You, you, there can't have this, there's no relationship there with holiness and sin. So there's a separation there, there's a gap. But Jesus died for sinners. So the question is, did Jesus die for you? What did Jesus' death accomplish for you? You know, the, the hymn, we sang a lot of hymns. Miss Patsy, you liked those hymns today, didn't you? You liked singing those? A lot of hymns about the cross. I think about those hymns and think about our sin, my sin. My sin has left a crimson stain, but you washed it white as snow. Can you say that? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My sins left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. Jesus came and died for sinners. Did he die for you? So, well, he died for everybody. He died for everybody. Everybody's No, he died for sinners. Did he die for you? Has his work on the cross have any effect? See, when Jesus dies for a person. A person places their faith and trust in his work on the cross as their own. You trust that Jesus died in your stead, in your place. He did that for me. And so when that happens, the sin that, that scarlet sin is washed white as snow. And what happens? Blake is reconciled to this holy God. Sinful Ronald Kidd is now reconciled to this holy, wonderful creator God. So has Jesus' death on the cross, has it had its effect? What's his death, has, what has his death accomplished for you? And if you say nothing, then you need to repent. And you need to trust Christ's work on the cross as your own. You need to turn from your way of sin, turn from living for yourself, turn from all those things that we see the religious leaders doing and Pilate and Judas and Peter and disciples. I don't live that way. I want to live for you. I want to obey you. I need your forgiveness. I want your forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. Wash me. I want to be yours. I want to know you. Canon Peter Green, he says this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. And so we read these stories, you know, these true stories that took place 2,000 years ago, and we think, man, how could they do that? How could they do that? How could they do that? But then, you know, the omniscient, all-knowing God 
Do you not see the same looking in our lives? How could you do that? How could you think such a thing? How could you be so proud? How could you be so arrogant? I know who you are. I see everything you do. I see every motive of your heart. We're culpable too. And it's interesting as we, we, we look at these sinful culprits and, and, and up against Jesus, you know, and we look, well, I don't know which one's worse, you know, is it the crowds? Is it Pilate? Is it Peter who should know better? You know, who's the worst of the, the bunch? I'm not real sure. But what's so terrible is you compare it to Jesus, and Jesus is just right in every way. His motives, his heart, everything, doing exactly what the Father wanted him to do. But it's interesting, as we think about this comparison, we, we, we try to do that with our own lives. And we try to make ourselves... Uh, Maybe we try to prop up our egos by comparing ourselves to other people. Well, you know what? I do this and I do that and I don't do that. And what we do is, is we compare ourselves to one another. But what does the Lord want us to do? He wants us to, he, he's our standard. Christ is our standard. You say, but you know, I'm a good old boy. No, you're not. You're not. I'm not either. You compared to me, you're you're pretty good boy, pretty good fella. Compared to Christ, you're desperately wicked, needing a savior. And this week we've been studying for the last month or so, this week is about Jesus coming to die for sinners, to be the savior. But is he your savior? If not, you need to repent. We don't have what you call a traditional altar call here very often. But I want to tell you, if you've never repented, you need to cry out to the Lord. And if you want to talk about that, and I'm not sure if, you know, you say, well, my, my sin's like, you know, left a crimson stain. He's washed me white as snow. I don't know if that's happened. I'd love to talk to you about that. And there's other people here. Maybe you came with somebody, you know some other people here that you would like to talk to about that. We'd love to talk to you about that. Have you been washed in the blood of Christ? That means have you repented and trusted Christ? Are you set free? Do you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Are you born again? Are you redeemed? Are you his child? Yeah. Love to talk to you about that. And maybe for, if we're, you know, for our church, for our church family, those who are believers, who have repented, this week is Holy Week. It's Passion Week. So let's live passionately and, and be holy. And let's focus on Christ and think about Christ. And if you don't have a reading plan, get a reading plan and just read all that happened on Sunday and then tomorrow, on Monday, what happened on Monday, and just read through that. Passion Week, what happened on that day? give you something to focus on. We need to focus on Christ this week. It's going to be a great week in the Lord. Let's pray for one another, asking the Lord to help us live righteously, to help us uh, obey the Lord in every way. We'll have our normal Bible study on Wednesday and, and then Friday. I know a lot of people's out of town, but Lord willing, a lot of people will be coming back. A lot of our families will be coming back. Friday, we'll be here to have a sweet time together. We're going to focus on the cross. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. It's going to be a really, really sweet time. 
and maybe if you're a part of our church, uh, you, you, maybe there, there's just things going on in your life. You haven't been living like you should. You've got a stronghold in your life. There's some things going on you need to confess. I want to encourage you to grab somebody and confess that to a, a brother or sister. I'm so glad you're here. It's been a good day. Good day singing truth and studying truth. and It's going to be a good week for us. Let's pray for one another. And I'm excited. We get to go now over into the, the FLC. we got food. We People's cooked. And we're going to go over there and eat. And again, if you're visiting with us, you got to eat. You might as well eat with us. And it's going to be so much there, you're going to find something you like. So we'd love for you to come and stay. We'll let you go first in line. If you want to stay, we'd love for you to do that because we'd like to get to know you a little better. And for us as a church family, you know, it's an opportunity for us just to fellowship and be together. Uh, but we're going to go over in the Family Life Center. We're going to dismiss. What I'm going to ask you to do is get your children from the nursery and from Children's Church first. And then if you want to gab and talk, let's do that. But get those children first. And then um, let's go over to the Family Life Center and we'll eat together, fellowship together. We do have a lot of people that are out of town. Um, it's spring break. My family, we're actually leaving today right after lunch. We're going to Georgia. Jenny's father, uh, many of you know, is going through chemotherapy. He hasn't been really doing real well, so we're going to go down and spend a few days with him. We'll come back Thursday. But be praying for our folks as we travel. Man, there's some new faces here. There's some faces we had not seen in a while. It's just good to see you. Pray the Lord bless you. Next week's going to be Easter. We're going to have a great week. We're going to sing a lot of Easter music. It's just fun. It's um. And we're going to have a celebration next week, so we encourage you to come. Friday night, 7 o'clock, next week, worship with us. Anything else? We need to, anything else announcement-wise? Have we forgotten anything, Blake? Anything? No? Okay. Well, let's pray, and we're going to go over there and, and eat. Um, if you're visiting, we would love for you to stay with us. No sense leaving. We already got it cooked, right? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge your goodness, and we, we, we're so thankful for your word and how it, challenges and convicts us and empowers us. And Lord, as we, we read about these sinful people that Christ had dealings with his last week and we see their attitudes and their lack of faith. And maybe there's some here who can identify and they're yet to place their faith in Christ. I pray that you would bring that about, that you would, you would be gracious to them, you would grant faith in repentance today, that they would turn to you and, and, and trust Christ's work as their own. Lord, we'd love to see people saved today. And Father, for our church family, Lord, we, we need to be reminded of the gospel and how good you've been to us. We sang that song, how good you've been to us. Everything that we have comes from you. Everything good we have comes from you. And Lord, we're thankful. We need to live thankful lives. Lord, may we live this week uh, thinking about you and your sacrifice and your love for us. Father, if there are, there's someone here who needs to confess sin, I pray that you would give them the grace to be able to do that with a brother and sister. Help us to be reconciled to you quickly when we fail you and, and be reconciled to one another quickly also. We are thankful for the food that you've provided for us and we pray that we'd have a sweet, sweet time of fellowship. We're so thankful for Jesus. May we give him glory this week. In Jesus' name, amen.